0: Now the good fight with Yasha Monk.
1: My name is James Bloodworth. I'm the author of Hired and a freelance journalist from London. I recently wrote an article for Persuasion on Cuba and the protests that recently took place there. I spent quite a long time, around a year, living in Cuba 10 years ago. I went there as something of an idealist. I was never pro-Castro, so to speak. But I was interested in the revolution. I thought it had done some positive things, more positive than negative, I would say. Yet this year I spent in Cuba really opened my eyes to the reality of the situation on the island. So, on the one hand, the economy was a disaster, and it wasn't all the fault of the United States embargo. The centrally planned economy simply didn't work. There were shortages of everything, everyday goods, things we would in wealthy countries consider the basic necessities of life. But also, there was this stifling atmosphere. Of repression. So I had friends, people I met who had been fired from their jobs in Havana University for writing very mild criticisms of the Cuban government. A black Rastafarian friend of mine was taken in by the police and had his dreadlocks forcibly cut off because this was seen as kind of a bourgeois deviation from communist morality. And also he was arrested again for simply hanging around with foreigners, i.e., myself. And When I came back to the UK from this time in Cuba, I encountered the familiar kind of attitude on the left, the very pro-Cuban, pro-Castro attitude on the left. So I wrote this article arguing that the left should support democracy in Cuba, essentially, should support the democratic left in Cuba, for instance. So there are many people in Cuba who are socialists, who are liberals, who are progressives, who also oppose the Cuban government on progressive grounds, who want to live in a society where they have independent trade unions, free speech, the right to free expression. And they don't have that at the moment in Cuba. So I wanted to argue, and I did so for persuasion, that the left should support the democratic grassroots in Cuba as they demand freedom and they demand the rights that we take for granted. If you'd like to read more of my work, you can find me on Twitter at J underscore Bloodworth, or you can obviously read my book, Hired, which is available in all independent bookshops. Thank you.
2: James Bloodworth's piece called Cuba Libre was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles
1: directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community.
2: My guest today is Alex Tabarrok. Alex is the Bartley J. Madden Chair in Economics at George Mason University. And he is the co-author, along with Tyler Cohen, who was on the podcast recently, of a great blog, Marginal Revolution. Alex has done great work on COVID for the last year and a half and the failure of our institutions to deal with that well. He has made many helpful suggestions, which have actually been taken up on how to roll out the vaccine, how to incentivize the take-up of the vaccine, and so on. And he is, in general, a very interesting thinker on the cost of delays in approving medication, the cost of not having enough economic innovation. And so while we don't agree on everything politically, we had a very interesting conversation about what kind of economy and what kind of society we should actually aim for. Alex Tabarok, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So you were really one of the first people to warn about the severity of COVID and to warn about the fact that many of our political institutions were getting the response to COVID wrong. You know, now that the United States at least is slowly coming out of the pandemic, how do you see the overall performance of political institutions, of the economy? of private actors how should the last year update our view on what's working and what's not working in our societies
0: pretty bad worse than i thought and i'm a sort of a libertarian sort of person skeptical of government to begin with and was worse than i thought so at least i thought that the cdc was the world's premier pandemic fighting organization this is the reason they were created this is the reason that etra And to see the CDC fail utterly, and then the FDA, I was less surprised that the FDA failed. They were sort of committing their usual blunder of being far too slow, which was especially dangerous given a pandemic. But at least I wasn't surprised about that. But to see the CDC fail and to see so many other political institutions fail was even to me very surprising.
2: And talk us through that failure. I mean, what is it that we really should have done in the United States over the last 16 or so months at this point that we didn't do?
0: Right. So first of all was the simple failure on their own standards, which was the CDC uh, tried to put together a test for COVID, and that test was botched. At the same time, the FDA prevented private firms and state governments from starting their own tests, from using their own tests. We had this very paradoxical, crazy situation where usually private firms are allowed to create their own tests. But because it was an emergency, they had to now apply to the FDA to do this. But slowed everything down. South Korea did the complete opposite. So South Korea gathered all of the test manufacturers literally in a train station because we need to act so quickly that we don't even have time to get to a hotel or we're just going to get everyone together at the train station. We find a room and the South Koreans told their test manufacturers, look, start producing these tests. We'll approve them later. The CDC and the FDA did exactly the opposite. This is the very beginning of the crisis. And because we didn't have testing, we didn't have a idea where the hotspots were. And that was like the last best chance to really get a South Korean, Australian kind of uh, outcome to really suppress it in the United States. Because of that failure to develop these tests and the delay in weeks, we really took that kind of outcome off the table.
2: And one of the things that strike me is that even once we did have relatively plentiful tests by probably the late spring, early summer of 2020, there was no real attempt to put in place a test, trace and isolate regime. In March of 2020, the assumption that we had was, well, look, we need to build up this test capacity and we need to perhaps build some kind of app or some kind of mechanism. But what we'll do eventually is that if you have been exposed to somebody with COVID, and certainly if you have symptoms, and certainly if you have a positive test result. We have a system in place for making sure that you don't come into contact with other people, and that's going to help us contain this virus to very small clusters. It's striking to me that even as we had a relative lull in the summer of 2020, even as we're coming out of the acute phase of the pandemic now, there's still no attempt at all to put such a system into place. Do you think that was an important failure? And if so, what explains it?
0: So I think the only opportunity to do that was right at the beginning, because a test trace kind of strategy in the U.S. context could have worked if you'd have caught it early and it would have been limited to a small number of people. That's really when test trace works the best to kind of suppress the virus early on and stop it from spreading. You know, we were very, very slow in producing new tests. And then we were continually facing a game of catch up. Right. The virus was just growing faster than testing capacity. And in that kind of situation, especially in the US with, you know, whatever fears of government or whatever, it's very strange, right? Because people carry around their cell phones, which (laughs) provide information on exactly where they are at all times of the day. And yet you ask them to do a test and trace and, oh, no, 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 I can't. That's privacy. You know, I can't do that. And yet Angry Birds knows a lot more (laughs) about where people are than the CDC. So I think we could have done that early. But After the initial failure, it was just too late.
2: So you think even in the summer of 2020, when caseloads were relatively low, when there was plenty of tests available, at that point, it's not that it wasn't technologically possible anymore, right? And perhaps in April or May 2020, it wasn't technologically possible because there's too many people. You know, by August 2020, there's perhaps few enough cases that we should have been able to put a system in place. But at that point, you think politically and culturally that train had
0: left the station? Exactly. I think especially with Trump and so forth. I mean, I remember I put one of these apps on my phone and it was very privacy oriented. So the upshot of my putting it on my phone was I had it on there for weeks and months. And there was never any indication that anybody else had it. So it was supposed to indicate when somebody else in the area around me had the app and, you know, what information, you know, whether they had been in contact with anybody with COVID. And nobody else but me seemed to have it. (laughs) So yeah, the demand just wasn't there. Which again, I mean, it is surprising because, as you said, the technology was totally there. And the technology was very easy. And Google and Apple both made that technology available. And it could have been done without implicating privacy. But the demand just wasn't there. And the government, they didn't want it either. So Trump didn't want testing. And he got it. So
2: so far, we've mostly talked about institutions not working as they were supposed to, which is to say that if you ask, you know, what is the CDC supposed to do when a dangerous new virus starts spreading? The answer is, well, they should design a very effective test and roll it out, and they failed to do that. It seems that there's another category of errors which fall into institutions did what they were designed to do, but it was a problem. When you think, for example, about the fact that we didn't do human challenge trials, or that we've been quite inflexible in how we produce, roll out, and administer vaccines across a number of dimensions that you've written about. Tell us a little bit about the failures when institutions did what they were supposed to do, but it was in fact the wrong thing to do and what we can learn from that.
0: Here's what I say about the FDA, which I preface by saying you could both take this as a compliment and as an insult. (laughs) It's a little (laughs) Straussian.
2: And by the way, for our international listeners, the FDA is the Federal Drug Administration, so the regulator that has to approve vaccines as well as medicines.
0: Right. So the FDA acted much more quickly than they usually do, (laughs) right? So you get a double-edged sword there. But it was much too slow. It was far, far too slow. So even once we had vaccines, once uh, Pfizer had submitted a vaccine, you know, the FDA took three weeks to schedule a meeting. And you think, I mean, three weeks, that's great, right? But on the other hand, this was in December when rates were increasing sharply. Literally thousands of people were dying every single day. So in between the time that Pfizer submitted their EUA and the FDA approved it, over 60,000 people died. So this was a time when really weeks mattered. And if vaccines, not only could they have been approved sooner, but they could have been available sooner. So the FDA delayed Pfizer. They changed the uh, standards midway through the clinical trials. So Pfizer stopped collecting data for a time. I mean, this was all political, right? So Trump, for obvious reasons, wanted a vaccine to be approved sooner. The Democrats did not. And there was a huge political fight. Eric Topol came in and castigated the FDA for working too quickly, for being too politicized. And that slowed the FDA right down. And so the vaccines were not approved as soon as they should have been. And had they been approved sooner, I think tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people could have lived who, in fact, ended up dying.
2: Uh, That's terrible and depressing. What lessons should we take from that? It seems to me there's sort of two categories of flaws that you're pointing to. One is the depoliticization and polarization of a lot of areas of American life, which, as you're putting in this particular example, slowed down the approval process for the vaccine. The deeper problem is just the bureaucratic structures that make it so incredibly expensive for any new drug, for any new vaccine to be approved and which normally delay it outside of a pandemic context, not by a matter of weeks, but often by a matter of years or decades or simply lead to various potentially effective treatments not being pursued because the money that is required to do so and the time that is required to do so just makes it not economically viable. So what kind of major reforms Should we institute to be able to deal with the next pandemic better, but also to be able to deal with all the other kinds of ailments of which people die day to day outside of a pandemic better?
0: Yeah, exactly. So I say that one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that people are beginning almost for the first time to be able to see what I call the invisible graveyard. The invisible graveyard is the place where you bury people who died because of FDA delay usually you don't see it because if the fda approves a bad drug and someone dies then people are upset and they know that this drug it killed their loved one and they protest and there are congressional hearings but if the fda fails to approve a good drug a drug which could have saved lives had it been available sooner then the people who die because of that no one knows who they are we know that they exist statistically But we don't see them. We don't see John Smith, you know, of 121 Main Street. He died because this drug wasn't available. They're just ghosts. So they die in an invisible graveyard. And what the pandemic has done has shown many more people that FDA delay can kill. It can kill because good drugs are not available, either because they're delayed or because, as you said, the expense of producing, researching and developing and getting a new drug approved are push so high. You know, it takes over a billion dollars to get a typical new drug approved. So that means we get fewer new drugs. There's drug lag and then there's drug loss. So both of these things, drug lag and drug loss, end up killing people. But it's hard to see. You know, I said the only people who can see the invisible graveyard are those who have practice seeing the invisible hand. <laughs> you know, so Some free market economists have kind of uh, said, look, 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 we, we need to think about the trade-off here. And I think this has been true in the pandemic, slowing down testing, slowing down vaccines. But for people with AIDS, for people with cancer, for people with heart disease, this is something they live with every single day. And so we need to think about the invisible graveyard more generally.
2: What causes this? So part of it is the bureaucratic structures of an administrative state and the attempt of government agencies to. Hoard power and remain relevant, all of which is very well described in both political science and economics. Another part of it, I think, is a set of moral conceptions, right? I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is our failure to carry out human challenge trials. Now, the logic for not doing that is that it's somehow supposed to be immoral to put people in harm's way. The job of a doctor is to cure people. And if you give them a vaccine, which may or may not be effective, and expose them to the coronavirus, you're potentially harming them. And that goes against medical ethics. Now, it seems to me that, you know, we put people in harm's way with their consent all of the time in society. We have soldiers, we have firemen. Coal miners. Coal miners. In all of those areas, we say, look, this is a dangerous job, but in part for the good of the community, you're willing to do that. And, And you're informed about the risks and you're not being coerced into doing it. But if you choose to carry that risk, then that is in fact a noble thing to do. It's very strange to me that in this one area where we could have potentially saved, I imagine hundreds of thousands of people, we say, no, 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 that's unacceptable. So how do you think about how much of this is just bureaucratic politics and institutional capture and the sort of things that always happen in bureaucracy and how much of this is sort of a set of misguided moral notions that make us insufficiently experimental and insufficiently give us insufficient urgency in how to approve drugs and treatments.
0: Yeah. As you know, I've been a big critic of the FDA, but ultimately I blame the American public. I mean, sorry to say, but I think it's true. Look, here's the really weird thing about the whole pandemic is that the public never got angry, as far as I could tell. I mean, here we had the Trump years and The public got angry about lots of things, about Trump's behavior, about the porn stars and his rudeness and, you know, all of this stuff on Twitter. And so they never really got angry about 600,000 people dying. Had the public got angry, I think the political apparatus would actually have done something. But it's amazing to me that in all of the time of the pandemic, there was no alternative politician who really made his bones on providing an alternative plan to the Trump plan, right? So even Biden didn't really run on Trump has failed on the pandemic. That was one of his things, but he didn't really run on, here's my alternative plan. Biden has actually benefited from the one good thing which Trump did, which is Operation Warp Speed. But yeah, I think the public never gone angry and the public has this very weird perspective on consent. Right. So consent, you know, when it comes to sex, consent is everything. Right? So you can't, you know, kiss somebody or, you know, every step in, you know, the sexual process. Well, you must have consent. And yet when it came to human challenge trials, exactly as you said, then suddenly people, oh, consent is not important. You know, even though we have volunteers, that's not enough. The same thing is true with the approval of vaccines. By the time we had the phase one and phase two trials which told you that the vaccines were pretty safe. They gave good information about effectiveness, but not in the field information. But at that time, in my view, it would have been perfectly rational for an individual to take an unapproved vaccine, especially for the elderly, for somebody in a nursing home, for somebody interacting with the public, for a physician, a nurse. It would have been perfectly rational for people at high risk to take an unapproved vaccine. And yet, really, that was not even on the table. That was barely discussed at all. So, as you may know, as I'm sure a lot of people know now, the vaccine was actually designed within days of the viral code being published. And, in fact, within months of that, within weeks of that, the vaccine was being produced and stockpiled. So, we had a vaccine actually back in January 2020. And we did start producing doses. March, April, by the summer... We had, as I said, good information, but that was never even discussed. You know, this idea of risk and reward trade-off, and maybe let's just let individuals be able to decide for themselves, you know, do I want to take this vaccine, even if it's unapproved? You know, there was a RADVAC vaccine. RADVAC was an open-source homebrew vaccine, which was supported by a number of top scientists, including George Church one of the most important scientists of the uh, 20th century. So it was possible, but it never got big support.
2: So that's interesting. I mean, I think the point about people not getting angry also applies as hard of the United States. At this point, as we're recording, Europe has caught up on vaccines relatively well, but there was a period of three or four months in which the United States was basically slowly getting back to normal and protecting a huge portion of its population. And Europe was just woefully behind. And there was barely any anger about this, at least expressed in the media. It was absolutely striking to me. I was on Twitter saying, with my parents in Europe and unvaccinated, going, what on earth is going on? And people were sort of saying, why are you so angry? It's like, well, because needlessly, my parents and millions of other people are at risk. Exactly.
0: And you compare it with 9-11. It's this is very weird human psychology, Right. So 9-11 happens and there's a human face on it, Osama bin Laden, and everyone is angry and we attack Afghanistan, we attack Iraq, we spend trillions, okay, trillions of dollars were spent in these wars, which maybe were a bad idea, but we took action, right, huge actions. We changed everything about airports, you know, homeland security, entirely new departments were created, right? And yet here we have the pandemic, which was much, much deadlier. Than the 9-11 attacks, much, much deadlier. And I was shouting, you know, as you were, this is like bombs are dropping on our cities. You know, every single day, thousands of people are dying. It's literally bombs are dropping and no one seemed to regard this in the same way. Oh, that's just nature, you know, something like that. What can we do about it? But we could have done a lot about it and we didn't.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a great rundown in the behavioral sciences of when people pay attention to something and when they don't. Is there a human enemy? Is it sudden? Is it violent? Does it bleed? Right. There's all of those kinds of things that go into whether something is attention grabbing. And one of the strange things about a pandemic is that it's not attention grabbing in that way. Right. I mean, one airliner going down is much more dramatic and news grabbing Then, you know, another thousand people die today in ICUs around the country, you know, as was the case in the United States a few months ago. I want to get a little bit beyond the pandemic, because I think all of this strain of thought also comes out of your broader economic thinking. In the same way in which there's an invisible graveyard of people who have died because particular drugs have not been approved, you know, there's sort of graveyard of inventions, important inventions and innovations That would do a lot of good to human beings, but we're not making because we're not making the right investments into basic science because we have regulatory constraints. How would you reshape public policy and how would you reshape the economy to maximize those innovations? And why is that such an important thing? Why should we care about making as many innovations, many inventions as we can?
0: Yeah. You know, my colleague, Tyler Cowen, has called us the great stagnation. You know, the productivity growth has declined tremendously beginning around the mid-1970s. And again, in the 2000s, like we have had almost zero productivity growth from the year 2000. And that's really disturbing. And you might look around and it's true, you see, you know, iPhones and iPads. And there are a few areas, obviously, where there is tremendous progress, more in bytes, bits you know, than in the physical world. But overall, productivity growth has been very, very slow. We do not live in a technologically progressive era. You know, we think we do, but in fact, if you compare, you know, 1903, right, the Wright brothers fly, and by 19, when did we get to the moon? (laughs) 1960 something, (laughs) you know, we're on the moon, right? We have not had that kind of progress since now part of it may just be bad luck part of it may be you get some technological innovations which cause you to make a leap but i think a lot of it also is regulatory there's a nice metaphor of throwing a pebble into a stream you have a regulation it's a good idea okay and you throw the pebble into the stream the regulation and you know nothing happens And then you throw another one in. It's also a good idea. You know, there's good reasons for the regulation, at least on paper. And you throw that pebble into the stream. And you keep doing this. And the problem is, is that no single regulation in and of itself is bad, but you just add them on top of one another and they begin to interact and interfere. And so it then becomes much, much more difficult to actually get anything done. You know, my wife is a microbiologist and most of her time is spent on paperwork, either Looking for funding or dealing with safety regulations, environmental regulations, you know, human personnel regulations, harassment training, you know, all of this stuff. Yes, we want the lab animals to be well treated. Okay, each one of these things is individually valuable. But then, you know, that's an hour out of a week. And then the next one is an hour out of the week, and you know pretty soon we're in a situation where most of my wife's time, who is a PhD, microbiologist, someone who should be saving the world, it's spent on paperwork. And that's true throughout the sciences.
2: How much of a problem is regulation? How much of a problem is a lack of investment in basic science? For example, the Biden administration is now going to invest a lot of money into various applied sciences. It's not actually that much money compared to how much VC money is sloshing around in a similar space. But it would be a lot of money to put into basic research where it's very difficult to get funding. And the case that my scientist friends make is that when you look at all of the great innovations over the last decades, including the internet and so on, it really is unexpected downstream benefits from basic science, and we're not investing in that in the same way. And uh, even this very generous science initiative of the Biden administration, which generally speaking is a good thing, according to them, is misdirected because it's going into very applied stuff that actually there is private funding for rather than the basic science stuff where it's very difficult to reap the rewards and where the state really does need to play a role. Do you buy that argument? Do you think we should be putting more money into basic science? And is the lack of funding for that one of the reasons for this stagnation? Or do you think really that's a sideshow and the important thing is the regulations?
0: Both. Yeah, most R&D is private. So I think they're correct that there is quite a bit of money for applied R&D, and that's when regulation is an issue. On basic science, there is a good economic argument for investing in it. And I can certainly say this is that we spend an awful lot of money dividing the pie, right? And very comparatively, little growing the pie. So, for example, we've had huge debates in the United States about health care, which is all about dividing. And look, maybe Obamacare is a good idea. Maybe it's not a good idea. Maybe expanding Medicaid is a good idea. Whatever. I don't want to get into that. But my point is, all of the economics indicates that if we could cure cancer, that would be worth trillions. Trillions. So I do believe there is massive underinvestment in the research side of it. And all of the attention is paid on the distribution side of healthcare, when actually on distribution, we're at the flat of the curve. Most healthcare doesn't work. It doesn't do a lot. You know, on the margin, healthcare is not that effective.
2: I thought for a moment you were going to make a different argument. I thought for a moment you were going to say, we should produce a lot more
1: doctors.
0: No, we've actually increased the number of doctors over the 20th century. We don't have a particular shortage of doctors. It's true healthcare is expensive because doctors are high-skilled workers. So I'm all in favor of more immigration with a better residency program and with more immigration. You know, we could have a lot more doctors, but also a lot more engineers, a lot more scientists with a better immigration policy. But I don't think that's hugely costly.
2: So if you had a politician come in saying, look, my main goal is to make America a more innovative society. My main goal is that 20, 40, 50 years from now, we reap the benefits of political changes and investments we do now. What should they do? Cutting regulation always sounds nice, and I'm in favor of that in the right areas. But that's not a very inspiring program, and it's a sort of relatively limited one. What else do you think would be required? Is that really the main lever or the other things that such a politician should do and talk about?
0: Yeah. So on a world scale, i just like to see much more experimentation. You know, one problem with globalization is that countries have come to behave in very, very similar ways. And I'd like to see a lot more experimentation across countries. This is like charter cities. It would be great to see a charter city. There's two actually starting up in Honduras, which are a potential to start a new, not entirely new set of rules, but with a fresh set of rules, you take the best that have been developed elsewhere and you start a new city based upon these new rules so i'd like to see more experiments like that we have very few experiments in governance this is supposedly one of the benefits of the federalist system but the federalist system is another thing which i think we've seen has almost disappeared in the united states again you could see this in the pandemic very very little experimentation across states Like some states, you know, the red states opened early or whatever, and the blue states did more shutdowns. But no state governor approved vaccines before another state governor. No state governor did a huge testing program compared to other states. So there was very little experimentation in the U.S.,
2: Why do you think that is? It strikes me that this is a phenomenon I see in many, many different parts of social life, and I haven't quite thought about it until this exchange. I mean, universities in the United States have great freedom to design the educational system, the courses they offer, as well as the admissions policies independently from each other. In reality, you know, the top 75 institutions all have pretty much the same structure and admissions policy. Obviously, the ones at the very top have a different ratio of admitted students to the yield they expect. So there's sort of certain differences that come from the placement within the hierarchy. But the basic things they value, the basic way they try to put together the incoming class is essentially the same across the vast majority of those institutions, the same for curricular structure and so on. When I look in a completely different context in Germany. There was a very strong attempt to have a federal media system because of fears that, as happened in the Third Reich, you would have what was called Gleichschaltung. You would have all of the sort of media institutions be captured politically and get on board with a regime. And so the idea is we're going to have these strong regional public broadcasting systems, and it's going to be far harder for one politician to take them over. Now, obviously, I'm not in any way trying to compare the current state to what it was in the Third Reich. But what's very interesting is that actually the difference between the structure of the radio stations in Bavaria and the structure of the radio stations in Hamburg and the structure of the radio stations in the east of Germany is very, very small. They do very similar broadcasting. The structure of the programs is very similar. Or you can look at the U.S. medium, right? There's sort of a right half of it and there's a left half of it. But, you know, the intellectual trends and the ways in which The Washington Post, The New York Times, The other Times have transformed over the last 10 years are very, very similar to each other. So why is it that institutions that are notionally independent from each other, but might actually often benefit from differentiating themselves from their competitors, tend to move in unison? It feels like that's actually a big, important, understudied question.
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm not sure. I think the internet actually has not helped and is accelerating this trend. People used to talk about the internet you know, in the very early years as kind of a global brain which is probably right. You know, all these neurons connecting, you can think about it as a global brain, but it has also meant that the global brain has the same thought everywhere, right? So it was remarkable with Black Lives Matter that there were Black Lives Matter protests in France and in Poland and, in, you know, Thailand. Oh, I think I saw one in Hong Kong, you know, all around the world. It was like bizarre, you know, but in this case, the American cultural juggernaut is so powerful that people all around the world are reacting as if their problems are the same as our problems. And they're responding to the same videos and the same person being shot and, and so forth. And yet yeah, it's a very static situation. I agree with you entirely about universities. It's shocking how similar every single university is to every other university and every economics department is to every other economics department. We tried to be a little bit different at George Mason, but it's bizarre because every economics department, even the second tier economics departments, they all try to be like a second tier Harvard (laughs) or a second tier Princeton instead of being, you know, the best in something else, in some weird field.
2: And the other thing that's striking is that, at least in some fields, I mean, political science departments today are very different to political science departments 30 years ago. But all of the political science departments 30 years ago were pretty similar to each other, and all of the political science departments today are pretty similar to each other. So there's change over time, but of all these different institutions
0: in unison. Yeah, yeah. It's like, is this a global brain? And it strikes me also that we had this period, beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, where all these universities were established. So like Stanford was created, uh, Chicago, Vanderbilt, you know, all of the uh, Robert baron money went into creating these new universities. And there hasn't been a serious new university in like 100 years, like maybe Phoenix, you could say, the online university was like the most serious kind of new university. And yet technology has completely changed. And you would think that... Here's an opportunity to re-envision a university, an educational institution, in light of all of the new technologies for teaching which have become available, and yet we're still chalk and talk, mostly.
2: And one of the things that really strikes me about education in the United States, where, again, it's very different from in other countries, but all of the American universities are similar in this respect, is that you cannot get a prestigious education without purchasing a package deal that also gives you a four-year membership to an incredibly state-of-the-art gym and, you know, university buses that ferry you from your dorm, that's a seven-minute walk to your classroom, you know, and an Olympic swimming pool and all of those different kinds of things, right? I mean, you'd imagine that somebody could say, hey, the cost of education is so high, we're going to offer an institution with you know, first-rate instructions and first-rate research, but we're going to save money on all those student experience stuff. And perhaps it's in a cool location, a big city, you can go and get a membership of a local gym and go out to restaurants if you like, but we're not going to have a fancy dining hall and we're not going to have a fancy gym. That doesn't exist. I mean, there are obviously community colleges that don't have many of these immunities and so on, but that's a very different category of education. That's not trying to compete with the people who would go to the top institutions, another area in which that's the case. I want to change topic a little bit because I know you've also done interesting and important research on crime and policing. And we're at this sort of strange moment in the United States in which to an extent that I think many people underappreciate, some of the more progressive social mood comes from a decade-long decline in violent crime. When we're thinking about reducing mass incarceration, when we see a revitalization of our cities, a lot of the things that are best about the United States at the moment, it is, I think, a downstream benefit from the fact that we've managed to reduce crime rates very significantly since around 1990 or so. Now, over the last couple of years, there seem to be worrying indications that there is a growth, a spike in violent crime, including murders around the country. But still, far down from the levels they were in in 1990, that it's a trend that worries me substantively because of the lives that are impacted by it and the communities that suffer from it, and that also, frankly, worry me politically for what kind of changes that that might bring. How seriously do you take this recent spike in crime? And if you think that that is a real phenomenon, what might help to explain why this is happening now?
0: Yeah, I take it very, very seriously. As you said, there was a huge decline in violent crime beginning in the 1990s, and this has been a tremendous benefit especially to minority communities. And I worry that the pendulum is going to swing too far, that with all the talks of defunding the police and you know reducing jail and so forth, which on balance I'm in favor of, but it could definitely go too far. And I hope that this is just pandemic related, that people have just gone a little bit crazy. But yeah, I really worry that we can see an upswing again. Here's the thing. The police do reduce crime. You know, and we're kind of forgetting this obvious fact, but it's true. The police reduce crime.
2: What's the evidence for that?
0: So there's a lot of evidence. Let me talk about a little bit of my research in particular. See, it's quite difficult to do because if you look across police and cities, you find that cities with a lot of police also have a lot of crime, just like, you know... Hospitals have a lot of sick people, right? But we don't think that hospitals cause uh, sick people. But you've got to find some way of disentangling the causality, right? So ideally, what we would look for is a random experiment in which you increase the number of police on the street, and then you saw what happened to crime. Now, we don't have too many of these random experiments, but a colleague, John Click, and I look at one of them, which was the terror alert level. So the terror alert level was created after 9-11, and when the Homeland Security gets chatter from abroad that there might be some terrorist attack, the alert level goes from like yellow to orange. And the police in Washington, D.C. are particularly concerned when you go up to orange, and so they take a number of actions. What do they do? Well, they go from eight-hour shifts to 12-hour shifts, which means 50% more police on the street. And so what Click and I do is we look at what happens to crime in D.C. when the terror alert level goes up. And what we find is that crime in D.C. goes way down, particularly street crime. So like automobile thefts and thefts from automobiles during these high alert periods, they go way down. So that's like one piece of evidence. And studies like mine have been done in different cities at different times in different places in the world. And they all reach substantially the same conclusion, which is actually that we are under-policed in the United States. We could easily double the number of police officers, and that looks like it would be beneficial. Now, clearly, there are problems with the police. So what I have argued for is that we need to make people in all communities comfortable enough with the police so that we can have more of them. So that everybody is happy with having more of them and that means a higher quality of police in order to get a higher quantity of police you know we're not going to get political agreement on a greater quantity of police until we also have agreement on a greater quality of police but i think if we could do both of those things we would be a lot better off
2: and it's interesting that opinion polls seem to show that this is the view of a lot of americans including in minority communities certainly majority of african americans want the same amount or more police in their neighborhoods, as opposed to less police.
0: Absolutely. African-Americans are not in favor of defunding the police. They want higher quality police, as well they should, and we should work towards that. But African-Americans, by and large, have disparities in their exposure to crime. They are robbed and murdered at higher rates, not by the police, but by other citizens. So they know that the police reduce crime in their cities.
2: Yeah, and so when you look at those opinion polls, it's very clear that African Americans in particular have deep concern about their treatment at the hands of police. And they do worry that they are treated less well than white citizens and that police violence is a very real reality for them. But some of them want more police, they don't want less police in the majority and they want higher quality police. Well, how do we deliver on that? How do we get a better police force? Now, one of the things I've seen is comparisons to the amount of training as well as to the education levels required to become a policeman in the United States versus other countries. And it turns out that in many other countries, we just invest much more into training police than we do in the United States. That seems like one kind of avenue. What other interventions are there?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. And I think we don't know the answer. Better training, as you said. I'm also in favor of you know, body cameras and things like that. Greater diversity in police hiring, I think, is important. I think though this is a act in progress and it does matter the messages you get from the top, from the police chiefs and so forth, that can make a difference. But also we do have a problem in that it's very difficult to separate anecdote from data. And while it's definitely true that there's some discrimination for sure in policing as there are in other areas, but overall, of course... (laughs) the police kill more white people they interact with than they do more blacks because there are more white people as well. So this is something we all need to be concerned about. And I think we just also need to be careful, especially going back to this global braid, right? So we see one video and we think that's representative of what is happening in the country. But we have 350 million people in the country and a lot of police interactions. And so it's bound to be the case that you have some terrible incidents happen quite regularly even when things on balance are getting much, much better. And I do think things are getting much, much better. So we have more evidence now of the problems which can happen, but things are much, much better than they were in the 1960s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. We've come a long way, and we need to recognize that as well.
2: Yeah, it is a very interesting thing where our evidence of bad things happening has thankfully improved which leads to more accountability and more outrage, which is healthy, but it can obscure the overall trend. Now, we don't have particularly good data, as I understand it, on rates of police killings over time. But what data we have does seem to indicate that it has reduced over time.
0: Yeah, it's outrageous that we don't have data on police killings, right? I mean, this is like of all the things you should collect data on, and yet the best data we have is from newspaper reports, which is crazy.
2: If we're thinking about how to get higher quality police, One of the things we probably need to do is to pay for more rather than less, to make it a more rather than less enticing career, which is not a politically popular position at the moment. I worry, though, that there's a sort of basic problem in the United States where, ironically, it's a similar problem with teachers as it is with policemen. And that's that when I look at the wage structure of a European society, the average lawyer and the average doctor makes far, far, far less money than they do in the United States. Now, that's not in itself a good thing, it'd be great for everybody to earn a lot of money, but it means that the social distance between a lawyer in a mid-sized town and a teacher in a mid-sized town, or for that matter, and I hadn't thought about this before this conversation, between a lawyer in a mid-sized town and a cop in a mid-sized town is significant, but it's not so vast that we live in completely different social worlds. Um, You know, in the United States, the difference is very, very large. Now, especially if you're sort of in college and you're trying to decide, do I want to be a lawyer or do I want to be a teacher? Perhaps you think that the job itself would be as fulfilling in both cases. But if you choose to become a teacher, a lot of the friends you went to college with, you know, may very quickly start going out to restaurants and going on holidays that you simply cannot afford. And so you're cut off from your social circle and that makes it a very unenticing career. So when Americans say, oh, you know, teachers earn so little here, that's not in fact true. Teachers in the United States earn among the top of what countries in the OECD pay teachers. So actually, just you know, in terms of the salary they make, including benefits, American teachers earn more money than German teachers, earn more money than French teachers. But they feel like, you know, hey, my buddies I went to college with who are now lawyers and doctors, they live a much, much better life than I do. So I'm not as socially valued. And that's a reality. I worry that when we're talking about other kinds of public servants, including policemen, we have the same problem in the United States. But if we want to draw in more talent to those professions, that is going to be very, very hard, uh, not just because the pay of cops perhaps is not as high as it might be, but because the alternative career available to the kinds of people we would love to have in police departments is just going to pay
0: them so much more money. Yeah, we try and do government on the cheap in the United States. I think the chief executive of Singapore, you know, earns more than a million dollars a year, right? I think it's the highest in the world. And in general, the bureaucracy in Singapore is paid very, very highly, and they get extremely smart and talented people. I've had the pleasure of interacting with some of the bureaucrats in Singapore and they're brilliant people. They are you know at the top of their game and the world standard. And yes, I think there is an argument for paying civil servants, even politicians and uh, police officers, teachers, you have to do two things. you have to pay them more, but then you got to fire the bad ones. So you have to need that package deal. And this is true for teachers, it's true for police officers, right? So for teachers, the very best teachers, generate a tremendous amount of value for their students 20 years down the line. It's really quite remarkable that having a really good you know, fifth grade teacher, you can actually see that in the wages of that teacher's students 20 years later. And we don't reward that enough. So I think it is valuable to pay high-quality teachers more. But you can't fire a teacher now. You can't get rid of the bad teachers. So the bottom, you know, there's so much security And the same thing is true with police officers, right? So we know there are these horror cases. Uh, You know, there's a case in Florida where this one police officer has been cited numerous, numerous times for excessive force and so forth and so forth, multiple times, and he just can't be fired. And we have in New York City, you know, the romper rooms, right, where teachers, they've been disciplined. They're not allowed to teach because they've done something wrong, but they can't be fired So they go sit in a room for eight hours a day and do nothing, right? Because we can't fire them. It's unbelievable. So, yeah, I think that a package deal where we pay teachers more, but you then have to understand that that is a reward which you could lose. So more merit pay. That's really what we need, more merit pay. And, you know, teachers' salaries are incredibly flat. Like we pay a physical education teacher about as much as you pay a math teacher. The math teacher, of course, has a lot greater opportunities outside of teaching. So we end up with great physical education teachers and not so great math teachers.
2: I wonder how that fits into a larger image of what the state should do and the welfare state should do. Let me put a very rough sketch of my thinking on this to you. And I think we have quite different politics, so you'll likely disagree, but that might be an interesting note on which to end the podcast. So it seems to me that we should have a high incentive society in which you can be phenomenally successful and bring a lot to society for that and also do very well for yourself. One in which we give a lot of opportunity to be entrepreneurial, to make innovations, to rise quickly in the social and economic ranks to people. It's one of the reasons why I'm a defender of meritocracy in a moment when that has become quite unpopular. But then I also think that we need to have a buffer for people so that they can take those risks. But for example, having some form of universal health insurance, for I'm personally not in favor of a single-payer system, is actually an important thing that allows people in their 20s, or for that matter, in their 30s or 40s when they might have kids, to go and leave a stable job, to take an economic risk, to start a company of their own, or go cast about for a job that might be you know, more fulfilling for them, that might be a better match for their towns. So in my mind, sort of, there isn't actually a contrast between... An effective welfare state which ensures that when misfortune strikes or when a risk goes wrong, people can continue to have a decent life and an entrepreneurial society in which we try to get rid of a lot of the regulations, a lot of the constraints that stop people from being economically productive and contributing to society. What in that picture do you agree with and what in that picture do you disagree with? Or to put it alternatively, what is your broad sketch of how we should set up a society that is both fair to its citizens, that gives them a decent standard of living, guarantees them a humane way to live, but also allows us to overcome all of the different kinds of problems we've talked through over the course of the last hour or so?
0: Yeah, so we're pretty far away from my ideal. So instead of thinking about the ideal, I sort of think about the direction, the vector that we should be going in. So I mostly agree with the vector that you have, even though way down the line, I would sort of depart from you. I say this, I'm much more concerned about getting rid of regulation and creating a more entrepreneurial society and getting rid of bureaucracy than I am with getting rid of a social safety net. So on that, we agree. Now, here's a point where I would disagree somewhat. Like I said, I want more experimentation in the world. And I do not want the United States to be a European welfare state, if only because I want to see a more diverse world. And like one of the big advantages of the United States not being a welfare state is that we can have a lot more immigration. So it's very difficult to have a lot of relatively poor people come to your country and to have a high minimum wage and a universal health care and whatever else you want to add on top of that, right? So to me, the biggest way to improve welfare around the world is immigration. So somebody who immigrates from Honduras or from Haiti to the United States, you know, their wages go up by a factor of 10 So that is a much bigger gain than any gain that the welfare state produces. So introducing people to the American capitalist system is a much, much, much bigger gain. So if it comes down to a choice between immigration and between the welfare state, too bad for the welfare state, in my view, because immigration is actually a much better way of raising welfare for the world as a whole.
2: Alex Tabrook. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally...